school where I studied how to be a math teacher, and now I'm in seminary studying how to be a pastor. The first uh, class, I sit down, I am ready to go, ready to learn, ready for this new adventure, and then the teacher begins to teach, and I probably understood roughly 20 to 30% of what she talked about for 50 minutes. She used jargon, soteriology and eschatology. She used uh, history about the divided kingdom, the fall of Samaria, and everybody else nodded like they completely knew what was going on, and I had no clue what was happening. I sat there, and I went home going, I don't know if I can do this. And then we had our first assignment. I believe she gave it to us that day, that first class period, and she said, by the end of next week, you have an assignment, and here it is. You have to write salvation's history from Genesis to Revelation. So from cover to cover, how God has worked through the whole Bible to bring about uh, salvation to not only his people, but to the ends of the earth. And I need you to sit down and handwrite for 50 minutes. This is your assignment. I am so thankful for that one assignment because when I was in over my head, it caused me to go back and to understand what I had just been in church and I had heard in pieces. I had seen um, episodically, maybe that's a good word to use, who knows. I, I had seen pieces and stories but never fit it together until that assignment. And since that assignment, I have been able to recount and to remember how God has worked from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between understanding that he has desired all people to come to know him. And so this morning, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 24. Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible, right after the Torah. Joshua is kind of this end of this conquest of Canaan, but to help us to understand it, because there's a lot of you in this room that if I just began teaching, you would go, I don't know, but 20 to 30 percent of what's happening, I want to do a brief three-minute overview of Genesis 1 to Joshua 24. So hold on, here we go. Genesis 1, God creates, it was good, then he makes man, and it was very good, remember? We are the image bearers of God, and yet, though we are image bearers of him, we choose to open and invite the door of sin when we ate the forbidden fruit. Then sin comes to rule and to reign in our lives. We see that in the murder of Abel right in the offspring of Adam and Eve. The world gets so bad that in Genesis 6, God says, I'm going to have to remove everybody from it to wash the whole thing away and to start over. But I'm going to save Noah. So God does. He washes away every inhabitant of the earth except Noah, his family, and the two-by-two of animals, right? But the problem is, while it cleansed the earth, it didn't cleanse our hearts. And so Noah and his offspring continue to live in sin. God in Genesis chapter 12 says, I am going to choose this man of whom I'm going to form a nation. He is an elderly man with a barren wife and no children, and yet him is going to be through whom I allow the lineage of the people of God to come. So Abram leaves his country, leaves his family, leaves all that he knows. He ventures even out of the bounds of Texas to go to the land that God is calling him, and he does it. Eventually, the lineage of Abram, or Abraham, ends up in Egypt due to a famine. They live in Egypt for a long time, and then there arises a Pharaoh who no longer shows favor to the Hebrews, to the Israelites, to the people of Abraham, And instead, they begin to fear the people of God. And so through population control, killing every firstborn male, and through uh, slavery, 
they try to just work the Israelites to death so that they can never rise up and deform what God desires for them. But God, in a storybook way, takes this baby that's floating along the Nile, raises him in Pharaoh's house, uh, sends him to the wilderness for 40 years after he murders someone, and then he draws him back to be the one that liberates the captives and sets them in motion towards freedom. Through Moses, this shepherd, he shepherds a million people out of Egypt only after these supernatural phenomenon we call the plagues. Pharaoh eventually, after all their firstborn die, Pharaoh eventually says, oh no, you can go, but that was short-lived. And so as the million people that Moses is leading get out, they come to the Red Sea and they look behind them and the Egyptian army is now chasing them. So they are stuck between a sea and an army, and then God once again works, right? He opens the Red Sea, he parts it, they walk across. As they get across, then the Egyptian army starts to follow, and God shuts the doors and floods and kills the Egyptian army. Moses leads the people, but their fear, rather than faith, caused them to wander in the wilderness. That Moses wants to take them to a land that the spies, when they go and scout out the land, come back and say is flowing with milk and honey. It's a fruitful and valuable land. The problem is it's an inhabited land. And there's giants, and we can't take them on. So they wander for 40 years in the wilderness, and then it's Joshua's turn to take command. Joshua leads the people out of the wilderness over the Jordan and begins to fight these fortified cities, these battle outposts, and takes them and defeats them one by one through the hand of God because they use battle strategies like trumpets rather than swords, and they take over the land of Canaan. And here we are in Joshua 24. Joshua 24, God is giving a speech in verse 13, and it ends with this. It says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored. Let me find it all the way. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and the olive orchards that you did not plant. God is saying, I, you are here because of me. I blessed you, I fought for you, I protected you, I loved you, cared for you, protected you, and I have you in this place. So Joshua now begins to speak. 14 and 15. Now therefore, he's speaking to this whole congregation of Israelites. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Verse 15, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of, the father, of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But then here is our Hobby Lobby verse of the day. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That last phrase deserves much more than just a hang beside a gather sign or a live, laugh, love sign. This last phrase is Joshua choosing with his life to say, I am committing all that I am to God to follow Him, to serve Him, and to be faithful to Him. Joshua is about to die. Verse 29, Joshua dies. Okay, So we're like 15 verses away from his death. 
And he's saying, my last words, my last information, my last speech, my deathbed vows is this. I am committing to God. I've made my choice. Not the gods of Egypt. Not the gods of the sun or the river or the Nile or whatever. Not the gods of fertility. Not the gods of um, crop success. Not the God of rain. I am committing to the Lord Almighty who I have watched work in powerful displays from the plagues through manna every single day. And until now, I am committing to serve Him. I want to use the uh, imagery of a wedding today. Joshua is saying, I am marrying God. I am committing my life to marry God. For better or for worse, for richer or for poor, from sickness and health to death do us part, I am marrying God. Now, when we talk about those Egyptian gods or the gods of the river, most of us kind of roll our eyes and go, why would they ever believe in that? Why would they ever worship, sacrifice? Why would they ever give any attention to a carbon image or to a painting on a wall or to some made-up thing And yet, we must not be so naive to forget the gods that we worship every single day. When I think about my life, I know I am tempted to worship the God of success, willing to sacrifice my family and my integrity to achieve. I am tempted to worship the God of love, sacrificing my morals for the sake of acceptance and pleasure. I am tempted to worship the God of money, sacrificing obedience to God so that I can be secure and comfortable in finances. I am tempted to worship the God of approval, sacrificing my standards so that others will like me. I am tempted to worship the God of perfection, sacrificing what is eternal because I am consumed by the temporal. I don't know what you're tempted to worship. Is it the God of a relationship or grades? Is it a God of health or happiness? What are you bowing down to? What are you sacrificing following God for so that you can experience or achieve or be given something in this world? What God do you worship? See, these, are, these worldly gods that we follow, they are demanding gods. We have bought into the lie that we have to appease these gods. Maybe it's our parents. That if they're not happy, or if we don't get these grades, if we don't have this resume, if we don't marry this person, if we don't get this corner office, if we don't get this, then we cannot experience the happiness that we have in our head. And so we worship these gods and present our lives as sacrifices to them rather than the God who loves us and died for us and sent His Son for us and is giving us grace. Joshua is setting up an or statement, not an and statement. See, for too long, we like to worship God and have really, really good grades. See, we want to follow Jesus and be able to marry whoever we want. We want to be godly and we want to be able to experience what everybody else experiences during college. Joshua has set up an or statement. It's either these gods, little g, or the Lord Almighty, Yahweh. Whom will you serve? Today you must choose who you will serve. It's interesting, Joshua does this in verse 15, and then a chain reaction happens, verses 16 through 18. It's kind of like when one guy gets a girlfriend, everybody wants a girlfriend. 
right? I think you've seen that, right? Okay, just making sure I'm not the only one. So this chain reaction happens, and here we go. The people go, well, don't leave us out. We don't want to miss out. And so they begin saying, oh, no, we want to do that too. Sign us up as well. Add me to the list. Like, we can do it. We will worship him. We want to get married as well. Verse 18, therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And then Joshua, as in the wedding scene, he stands up and he says, I have an objection. I don't offer those um, parts when I do weddings because that would be super awkward, and I don't know what I would do if somebody's aunt or uncle stood up and said, I object. I don't know if I'm supposed to just power through or what. But Joshua doesn't wait for the pastor to say, hey, we're about to start the ceremony. He says, I object, verse 19. He says this, You are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you're committing to Him and you're unfaithful, this is not a good thing. But the people say, no, 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 we can do it. Trust us, Joshua. We've got this. We are strong enough. Verse 21, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then we have some vows that are made, verse 24. The Lord our God we will serve, and His voice we will obey. Okay, here are the vows. We've had the objection, we've powered through it, we've had our vows now. Now it is the exchanging of the rings, but instead of a ring, it's a rock, which that's really what the girls want. Um, So verse 27, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that He spoke to us, and it shall be a witness against us if we deal falsely with God. The ceremony ends, people return home, everyone is happy. And let's pause for just a second. If you had started reading your Bible in Genesis 1, and you read about the flood and you go, man, people are terrible. You read about Abraham and you get hope, and then he doesn't have kids for a long time, and he even starts complaining in Genesis 15, like, God, I don't have anybody. You've promised me a nation, and yet there's nothing. You've gotten to see how Isaac was born. And then you held your breath as Isaac and Abraham go up the mountain. He's about to kill him. And you're like, wait a second. He was the promised one. Now we're about to kill him. What's going on? Then the, the son is spared. The ram is in the thistles or bushes or whatever. And we see all these great things happen. Then we get to Egypt and Exodus 1. And really bad things are happening. But God hears our cry, Exodus 2. He sets us free. The plagues are pretty awesome because our, we've got a, our dad's better than your dad is kind of the logic. Like, he can do these great things. They lead us out. And then, after all of this, we lose our faith when we go and we see that the Canaanites are powerful and strong. And so we've read through all of this. We read through Joshua. And in Joshua 24, this is the culmination. It should bring us to tears. The people of God are in the promised land and have promised covenant faithfulness to God. This is what we've hoped for. Everything has happened. I mean, Adam's you know, choice has been reversed. Abraham's uh, promise has been realized. Moses' vision has been achieved. And Joshua's conquest has been completed. This is the high point we should think of the Bible. But none of us are excited. Why? Because we know we still got three-fourths of terribleness coming. The people promise. 
The people commit. The people say it will never be. We will never run away. We are marrying you. But unfortunately, a wedding is merely the first day of a marriage. Weddings are easy. Don't ask brides about that or mother-in-laws, okay? But weddings are pretty easy. It's a party with a few different vendors that do their job, and you just hire them, you write a few checks, and it's pretty easy. Marriages? Not so much. See, in a wedding, I repeat a few words. In a marriage, I have to repeat grace, forgiveness, and mercy every day. You probably know the statistic, right, that 50% of all marriages in the U.S. end in divorce. And you've probably also heard that 50% of marriages among Christians end in divorce. But see, those statistics aren't as truthful as maybe we have presented them. I was studying about that this week, and what I began to learn is that, yes, if you took everybody that calls himself a Christian, then yeah, divorce rate's about 50 and 50. But as you open up and as you look into people who are committed to following, who are active in their churches and involved in, like, have their life of faith lived out, the rate of divorce is actually 35% less than that of non-religious people. But it's those people who claim to be Christians who then also claim to want to get married. The people that claim to be Christians but are not willing to commit in their life aren't really committed in their marriages oftentimes either. And this was a scary statistic. People who claim to be Christians but are not active in it are 20% more likely to get divorced than non-religious people. When we look at the text today, it's easy for us to go, yeah, you emotional Israelites, y'all were following on in just chain reaction of, yes, well, they're doing it, so so should I. They're raising their hands, so should I. They seem moved by this, they're crying, they went down front, they're getting baptized, so should I. But we need to stop emotionally responding to what we must be faithfully committing to. We can't just follow God as long as camp is still meeting, as long as I'm still hanging out around these friends, as long as I still live with these people, as long as I'm still dating this person, as long as I still live with my parents. We must not emotionally agree to what we're never willing to commit to. Turn your Bible one page with me from Joshua 24 to Judges chapter 1. Joshua's dead. He'll die again in Judges chapter 2, I believe. Yeah. I don't think there's a theological thing there, just I think two people writing. And in the book of Judges, and we're going to study this over the next three weeks as well, it is probably one of the lowest points in Israel's history. The tagline of the book of Judges is this. They did what was right in their own eyes. Lived how they want, with who they want, where they wanted, and did whatever they wanted. That sounds familiar. But Judges 1 starts off, chapter, I mean, verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out 
the inhabitants of Beth Shean. 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. 31, Asher, come on, man, did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or however you say that. 33, uh, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back. They even became more powerful than them. Now, what in the world does that mean? Because some of you are going, you're talking in jargon, I don't understand. Here's what that means. God said, this is going to be your land. You are going to need to drive these people out. In some of the cities, we kill everyone. Other of the cities, we just push them away. They cannot live and inhabit this area. Why? Genesis 15, I read it this morning in my own personal devotion. God is promising 400 years ago to Abraham that you're going to live in this land that's inhabited by Canaan, and you're not going to actually physically get to see this, but in 400 years, I'm going to judge the people because they have not chosen to worship me, and so the inhabitants will be driven out. And Joshua allowed that conquest to begin, but the people who committed to God, who married God, who said, I'm faithfully committed to serve you and obey you wherever you call us, did not serve and obey whatever he called them to do. But here's the real why. God knows that if we do not drive them out, then we will live among them. And when we live among, it quickly turns to living like When we live among, when we coexist, we're going to adopt some of how they live. You know this. Now that you have moved out of your parents' house and you live with roommates, you have adopted some of their things. Maybe some of their language, some of their habits, some of their uh, viewing habits, whatever. You have adopted, you become a little bit like those who you live around. God knows this, and he says we cannot coexist with these pagan worshipers. Because if we live around, we're going to live like. God is a jealous God. He makes no room in his covenant for extramarital worship at all. There is no room made for this. Let me put it in terms we understand. This is the guy who gets married but still likes to text his ex. This is the the girl who still is accepting of a sugar daddy even though she's married the love of her life, right? Like, this is, well, I mean, I might want to keep this person involved in my life because there may be some value still. This is the guy who says, oh, we're just friends. There's nothing to worry about. It's the alcoholic who says, oh, I just like to, I prefer to watch the game at the bar. I can handle it. I'm strong enough. I'm able. I can do this. But God knows, no, you, you can't handle this. You can't handle the temptation. You can't handle being in this place. Because if you live among, you're going to live like. It's why in Deuteronomy God says, do not intermarry. That is not a racist statement at all. It has everything to do with worship. God desires different ethnicities to come to know Him. We will study Ruth at the end of this. She is adopted in. But God's not going to play around with what you're worshiping. See, we, we go, well, that would have been so easy just to drive them out. But no, the practical side of our, we, we miss the practicality of having the, the Canaanites around. Here's why. They were cheap laborers. 
They could be the slaves for Israel. Why not keep them around, let them do the jobs we don't want to do, and we can just live off the fruit of the land. Yeah, let's keep their temples. We'll tear down a few of their gods. We can let them have their own space, but we can retrofit this to honor our God. The practicality side of keeping the people didn't allow them to obey. But if you've been with me long enough, if you're more than a freshman, you've heard me say over and over and over again that following Jesus requires radical steps for the sake of holiness. The people of Israel were not willing to take radical steps, to cut ties, to end relationships, to drive people out. You and I in our following of Jesus want ands. I want to follow Jesus and maintain this addiction. I want to follow Jesus and be consumed by school. I want to follow Jesus and date whoever I want to date. I want to follow Jesus and pursue wealth and only wealth. We must take radical steps, cut ties, end relationships, delete apps, install software, be honest, commit to community. We must choose to be served. We have to take radical steps. If we're unwilling to take radical steps, then are we just halfway following? What does that really mean? Israel promised on emotion rather than committing to faithfulness. Is your spirituality just emotional? Does your faith rest on weekly emotional highs? Was quarantine hard for you because you couldn't get your fix of breakaway? I fear how many of us survive off of a diet of once a week of being poured into with the Word. I fear how many of us rely not on our own ability to uh, approach God and to learn from Him, but on what someone else has learned. I fear that so many of us have emotionally committed to something we're not willing to commit our life to. Joshua understood, and I hope you do too, that God was greater, higher, better, stronger than anything this world offered. Are you convinced of that? Joshua didn't know Jesus yet. But are you convinced that Jesus truly is the only way you can have salvation? Or do you want Christ to pay for your previous sins, but then you try to earn your own Christianity the rest of the way? Do you want a Christless Christianity so that you can say, oh, I did it, God, I earned it? Do you ever say, just give me one more chance rather than just give me Jesus? Have you come to understand that the only way that you can ever honor God is because the Spirit's working in you, keeping you, convicting you, and sanctifying you. That you're never going to be enough, but that Jesus is more than enough. The book of Judges is a really low point in the history of Israel. The people did what was right in their own eyes. But I also believe it's a prophetic point for our day. Because we live how we want to live. We do you, right? If it feels right, it must be right. 
But we have to understand that we have to be committed to what God has called us to do and to obey Him and Him alone. Because we are wayward prodigals, we're greedy tax collectors, we are serial adulterers, we are flimsy in our faith, we are running away, but we need to understand that we are loved, that we have been brought in, that we are given a home, that we are given help, that we have hope, that our best attempt will never be enough, but the work of Christ on the cross is enough. If you heard this today and go, well, the Israelites sucked, okay, sure. But if you don't realize that you and I suck as well, then we're missing it. I don't know if you're supposed to say that, but I did. If you believe and you go, man, they just didn't try hard enough. They just didn't work at it. If they would have just obeyed this one thing, no. There's nothing, no matter what your greatest temptation or your greatest sin or the place you feel like you're the biggest failure, I don't care if you ace that the rest of your life, you're still a vile, terrible sinner who deserves uh, hell, not heaven. The scorecard of your acceptance has nothing to do with how good you live or how holy you are. It has everything to do with what Jesus did and if you believe in that. I hope that you have married your life to Christ. I hope that you have said, I cannot do it on my own and I am committing to faithfulness to Him. But I hope you also understand that along the way, He loves you even in your failures, forgives you and gives you grace for the things that you promised you would never do again. And He invites you to be with Him. In weddings, we say, for richer or for poor, for better or for worse, this day and forever, till death do us part, I commit to you. I hope that that is not an emotional thing for you. There is emotion in it, but it's not only emotional. I hope this is where you've surrendered your life. If that is something you are not convinced of, if you are doubting, if you are unsure, if you go, well, I played a game, I raised a hand, I got baptized because the pool was moving, there were waves being made, and everybody else was doing it. If you have any doubts of that, I desire you this week, talk to me, talk to somebody that's in your small group. I don't care if you're on our leadership team. I don't care if you're an adult in this room. I don't care if you're a small group leader. I don't care what. If you wonder or worry about where you stand, please talk to me, talk to someone. Because we want to introduce you to Jesus Christ, who gives you grace beyond what you can imagine. I went super long at the end. I'm going to pray. And then I have a few questions I want you guys to honestly share with one another. So, let me pray.